Welcome to the Paralegal Voice, where you hear the latest issues and trends in the world of paralegals and legal assistance by one of the best-known paralegals in the industry, Vicki Voisin. A paralegal for more than 20 years, Vicki is dedicated to helping legal professionals reach their goals. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Paralegal Voice here on Legal Talk Network. I'm Vicki Voison, the Paralegal Mentor and host of the Paralegal Voice. I'm an ALA Advanced Certified Paralegal, and I publish a weekly e-newsletter titled Paralegal Strategies. I'm also the co-author of The Professional Paralegal, A Guide to Finding a Job and Career Success. You'll find more information at paralegalmentor.com. My guest today is Marla Mitchell Sishin, co-director of the Innocence Project at Cooley Law School. Welcome, Professor Mitchell. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. And before we begin, I do want to recognize our sponsors, and that would be NALA, a professional association for paralegals providing continuing education and professional certification programs for paralegals at NALA.org. NALA is a force in the promotion and advancement of the paralegal profession and has been a sponsor of the Paralegal Voice since the beginning. And also ServeNow, a national network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit ServeNow.com to learn more. The goal of the Paralegal Voice is to discuss a wide range of topics important to the paralegal industry and share with you leading trends, significant developments, and resources you'll find helpful in your career and your everyday job. Guests are usually included to help explore timely topics. That's why I invited Professor Marla Mitchell Sishin of the Cooley Law School Innocence Project to be my guest today. Every paralegal should be aware of the workings of the criminal justice system. This is Professor Mitchell's passion. Professor Mitchell began her teaching career in 1986 following service as a public defender. Her clinical teaching includes post-conviction, criminal defense, general civil practice, elder law, and externship. Professor Mitchell began teaching in Cooley's Innocence Project in 2002. She serves as the project's co-director, and in 2006, she received the Justice for All Award from the Criminal Defense Attorneys of Michigan for her Innocence Project work. Her experience includes practicing before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, the Ohio Supreme Court, the Trial and Appellate Courts in Ohio and Michigan. Her publications are in the areas of criminal law, elder law, ethics, and clinical teaching. So now that we know all about you, Professor Mitchell, I'd like for you to tell our listeners about the Innocence Project and why that project is so important, because I think most people don't realize it even exists. Well, the purpose of any Innocence Project is to identify and work toward the release of someone who has been convicted wrongfully. In other words, they did not commit the crime. And the Cooley Innocence Project was started in 2001, and our project focuses on what we call DNA cases, meaning we are reviewing cases in which biological material that was collected at the time of the crime can be 
tested or retested through DNA technology to help in that process of freeing an innocent person. Now, I find it interesting that most clients will say they're innocent. You know, we're supposed to pay attention to that, but you always kind of roll your eyes. And of course, you know, everybody's innocent. So what are the common causes of wrongful conviction? Well, the leading cause of wrongful conviction is eyewitness misidentification. So the eyewitnesses see, they give the wrong description, or they're not just lying, is that correct? No, typically not. I mean, most witnesses to crimes are trying to recreate, if you will, what they witnessed during the crime itself. But based on the social science, humans are not very good at that. So when I say that the leading cause of wrongful conviction is eyewitness misidentification, it could just simply be an innocent mistake by a witness, or it could be a witness was coached or even coerced to identify a particular defendant. Does their identification need to happen soon after the crime, or does their testimony usually change as time goes on? Well, of course, you can only have an identification procedure once you have a suspect. And unfortunately, most identification procedures focus on who the suspect is rather than the description given by the eyewitness. And that's where the problems come in. Okay. So if they don't have a criminal, they haven't arrested anyone, then there's no way to have an eyewitness. Is that correct? Well, there may be an eyewitness to a crime, but until a suspect is arrested, typically witnesses do not engage in the process of identifying someone, which typically is through either a live lineup or a photo lineup. And those are typically set up based on who the suspect is rather than the description that the individual gave. Okay, I do have a question for you. While I have worked in a law office where we had a lot of criminal cases, it was early on in my paralegal career, so you know, I have a totally different take on all of this now because television is so much more advanced and we have so many shows about criminals. And I always try to remind people that those shows aren't like real life. And I think that's some of the problem with people who try to identify witnesses, try to be a big help. This isn't television. And I don't think that the procedures are the same in real life as they are on television. Things don't happen so fast. They go to trial immediately, and we will talk about going to trial immediately because I think that is another problem that we have. But what about DNA testing? How does that play a role in uh, identifying these wrongful convictions? Well, again, first you have to have a case which involves biological evidence, and that's actually a small number of all criminal cases. So you're typically looking at the crimes of murder and rape although certainly other crimes could involve that. But the first step, obviously, is at a crime scene, that biological evidence has to be collected. So if evidence isn't collected that can be DNA tested, that's not going to be an avenue to prove innocence. In terms of the television aspect of it, in the TV programs that we typically see on television, the best science is coming to bear in those shows to the extent that they're talking about DNA testing. And when DNA testing, while the cost of it has gone down over the years since it was first used in the late 1980s, there are issues related to whether or not 
first of all, evidence will be collected. If it is collected, will it, in fact, be DNA tested, and will it be DNA tested in a timely fashion? You have mentioned in some of our conversations a few of the really very interesting cases where the defendant was innocent, said he was innocent, went to jail for several years, and I believe there was one in New York, and then again in Michigan also. Could you tell me about a couple of those cases? Well, it really fits nicely with this idea of the causes of wrongful conviction, because typically in a case in which someone now has been proven innocent through DNA testing, what we find is that two or three problems occurred prior to the trial. So to use our first DNA exoneration in the Cooley Innocence Project, Mr. Ken Wynemko was wrongfully convicted. There were problems with the science that was used against him. Uh, Not all the evidence was tested in the case. And in fact, he was excluded by rudimentary science prior to trial. There were issues of informant or a snitch in the case, which is also a cause of wrongful conviction where someone gives information to the police that's not trustworthy information, typically to gain a benefit for that person or to perhaps point the police away from the person that's providing the information. And closely related to that, there are issues of false confessions. And while Ken himself never made a statement suggesting that he was involved in the crime for which he was convicted, which was a rape conviction, an individual in the jail, once Ken was arrested, testified that Ken confessed to him. So Ken's case is an example of how these causes of wrongful conviction tend to have more than one problem in the case. Finally, in Ken's case, he was given a new attorney. He had an attorney appointed, or he may have hired an attorney to represent him, but just within a few days of his trial, he was given a new attorney, and that attorney had to go to trial with very short lead time in terms of preparing Ken's defense. Going to trial in a very short lead time is a problem because these people have the right to a speedy trial. So how do you balance that? Well, again, I don't recall specifically what happened in Ken's case, but defense attorneys can ask for more time if they need it, and it's up to the defendant to decide whether it's in his or her benefit to have more time to prepare. And typically, they're going to be able to get those continuances. On the other hand, if the defendant wants to go forward with his case, but there's, for example, a backlog at a local lab or the Michigan State Police Crime Lab, that individual isn't typically going to want to wait for months on end for DNA testing to occur. So sometimes criminal defendants are put in a tough spot in choosing between the opportunity to have DNA testing, for example, and not have it. Okay. That's, that's, a, that's a big problem. And so they don't always have to have DNA testing? Does that not always happen? Well, again, assuming that there's biological evidence to test, the state typically, meaning the police officer, investigative officer, or the prosecutor in the case, typically is the individual who initiates or requests DNA testing in a case. It is possible for the defense attorney by court motion to also ask for DNA testing in a particular case. And that, again, is where you get into the issues of time and money to have the DNA testing completed. And, again, there's a backlog, is that right, usually? 
Well, typically, there's a backlog at most state crime labs. Now, let's bring this back to paralegals. I know that you have law students working on your project, but how can paralegals help identify the issues when they're working on a criminal case and the defendant says they're not guilty? Well, I really appreciate that question, first of all, because the idea here is for there to be no need for an innocence project. In other words, that innocent people will no longer be convicted as a result of a criminal trial. So it's really important for any attorney or paralegal involved in the criminal justice system to have at least a working knowledge of what are the causes of wrongful conviction and what can I do if I'm a paralegal, for example, to see these things as they occur. First of all, I think you have to have an open mind. It's very easy when you feel like you're hearing the same stories over and over. As you mentioned earlier, if you're often hearing, I'm innocent, but if you look at the issue, for example, of eyewitness identification, you can, finding out information about how the identification occurred in the particular case that you're working on is critically important, and challenging it through pretrial motions and being up to speed on the social science in the area is helpful. Similarly, when any of these issues that lead to wrongful conviction tend to be part of your investigation, in other words, for example, there's a long list of junk science sciences, if you will, that may be used in a case, for example, bite mark impressions that do not have scientific support. So if you get a case that comes in your office and one of the identifying factors for your client is a bite mark, then that is certainly a red flag. If there's a confession in the case, that's a red flag. If there's an informant or a snitch in the case, this may be a red flag. That's not to say that these things may enter into the case and that the defendant might, in fact, be guilty, but certainly if you see those types of issues coming up in the case through your investigation, then it's important to follow up with those. And, of course, another, unfortunately, cause of wrongful Conviction is defense attorneys who don't do their job. So it's really important for, again, to kind of go full circle, to be open-minded to each client's individual story and follow up on these issues that come up that may actually provide information if you look into them more clearly. Now, I want to stop for just a minute. We're going to take a short break. It's time for a word from our sponsor, NALA, the Association of Legal Assistants and Paralegals, and also ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screen process servers. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about Cooley Law School's Innocence Project with Professor Marla Mitchell-Sishan. NALA means professional. NALA offers classroom and web-based continuing education and professional development for all paralegals. And NALA's certified paralegal credential has been a gold standard of professionalism for over 30 years. More than 15,000 paralegals have this certification, and nearly 2,000 have achieved the demanding advanced certified paralegal. NALA works actively with others in the legal field to promote the value of paralegals and to advance paralegal professionalism. See more about why NALA means professional at www.nala.org. 
Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. I'm Vicki Voison, and my guest today is Professor Marla Mitchell-Sishin, co-director of the Cooley Law School Innocence Project. Thanks for joining me, Professor Mitchell. You're welcome. Tell me a little bit more about Michigan's post-conviction DNA testing law. The benefits, are shortcomings, tell us a little bit about that. The post-conviction DNA testing law in Michigan was passed in 2001, and it was the first law in Michigan to provide the opportunity for convicted defendants to request post-conviction DNA testing. And it was critically important because while Michigan, like most states, have uh, post-conviction law that allows you to bring new evidence into court, DNA testing is the opportunity to create that new evidence. Are there innocence projects in other states? Yes. Many, if not all states now have either a post-conviction DNA testing law or an innocence project or both. But Michigan wasn't the first to have this, is that right? That's right. Typically, the innocence projects sprout up after the state passes the law to allow for the testing. Oh, okay. And that's exactly what happened in Michigan. The law was passed in early 2001, and the Cooley Innocence Project was started shortly thereafter. And these innocence projects are typically in a law school, is that correct? They may or may not be. Some of them are and some of them aren't. The first innocence project was uh, the New York Innocence Project. And it is a law school-based project, but they're also what I would call freestanding projects that are not associated with a law school. Well, tell me, how is an individual who's wrongfully convicted assisted after their release from prison? I mean, they can be in there for years, and they're a different person when they come out. So do they get help? In Michigan, they currently do not get anything. In fact, someone who has been wrongfully convicted in the state of Michigan receives absolutely nothing if he or she is released through Michigan's post-conviction DNA testing law. If you are paroled in the state of Michigan, you do receive some services and some support by the state of Michigan. And in part, this is because this is a relatively new social phenomena. Until the late 80s when DNA testing started and then into the 90s when DNA testing laws were passed, and innocence projects went to work, so to speak, there weren't a lot of good avenues to prove that someone was factually innocent of a crime. So unfortunately, Michigan's a bit behind the times in terms of compensating those individuals who have been wrongfully convicted. So there is compensation provided in other states? Yes, 29 states and the District of Columbia have some form of compensation through a law that the state has passed to provide support. And it's really important that someone who's wrongfully convicted receive support quickly because they have been in prison for a long time, typically minimal. Most innocent prisoners are not released until 
five, six, seven years, and certainly there have been individuals who have served 20 years plus in prison before they've been released. So you can imagine over those terms of years, everything that that prisoner has lost. Sometimes they don't have family or a support system at all. They certainly uh, have lost their opportunity to develop skills, employment, those types of things. So it's, it's critically important that they're compensated, which is why they're called compensation bills. The idea is to right the wrong, so to speak, by providing them with financial, educational, and medical benefits. Well, it seems only fair if they're wrongfully convicted that they should have something. I certainly would hate to be in prison for 15 or 20 years and walk out with nothing and... I just don't know how you start your life over again. It would take a very special person to do that alone. Yes, and it's critically important because while sometimes people say the innocent person can sue the state actors if there's wrongdoing, that typically is focused on the bad actors and the compensation is really punishing the bad actor. And a compensation bill is the only way we know in the legal system to make someone whole, and that is to provide them with economic support through, again, it varies from state to state, economic support, health benefits. And it's critically important that that individual not go through a protracted lawsuit, which is what typically a lawsuit, when you sue individuals, you know, the lawsuit can go on for a couple years or more. And two or three years after someone has been released from prison, it's that time when they first get out that they need this assistance. You referred to bad actors. You're talking about an attorney who doesn't do the job. Who else? Maybe a witness that was uh, lying, something like that. What are you talking about when you say bad actors? Well, typically witnesses are not held legally responsible. Okay. Uh, However, police officers, prosecutors could they don't necessarily always do engage in wrongdoing, and that wrongdoing contributes to a wrongful conviction. So, for example, if a confession is coerced by the actions of a police officer, or if a police officer convinces someone to lie about the defendant and his his or her involvement in the crime, then it's possible that they might be responsible for their behavior. But it's, it's extremely difficult to recover in those types of lawsuits. You're not going to just be able to make an argument in court that someone made a serious mistake. There has to be the legal standard to recover against the bad actors, if you will. Prosecutors, for example, are absolutely immune right. if, as long as they're acting within the scope of their employment. So even if they do something that is inappropriate or unethical, an innocent individual will not recover anything from them after they're released from prison. It's an interesting topic, and I'm glad to get down to the kind of the nitty-gritty of all of this because it certainly isn't as glamorous as on television. (laughs) It's uh, very serious. No, and I think if you spoke with my students, they would echo that, and we actually say that to students who come into the Innocence Project. We tell them that If you think this is going to be glamorous work, it certainly will not be because it's very much needle-in-the-haystack type of work. Particularly when we're working on DNA cases, the first question is, is this evidence that was collected maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago still available today? And typically the answer to that question is no. 
So the very thing that you need to prove your innocence may no longer exist. And it's very difficult. Um, You asked me about the shortcomings of Michigan's law. The law itself doesn't really give innocence projects or the defendant access to evidence. So it's very difficult for us to determine whether the evidence still exists in the case. We can ultimately go to court and ask for a court order for example, state agencies to search for the evidence. But before we can do that, we have to prove that we've made a diligent effort on our own part to locate evidence in the case. So it's an uphill battle to pursue these cases. Uh, When you think about a case that's 10 or 15 years old, even if the evidence is around and it can be tested, certainly there's other information that you're going to need to gather in order to prove innocence. I would really want your listeners to understand that the first step of a DNA case is determining whether the evidence is still around. Then you have to get a court to order the DNA testing of the evidence. And then if that evidence points to your client's innocence, it does not necessarily mean that your client will get out of prison. You actually have to file a motion for a new trial and convince the court why This new information, if you will, should require the court to order a new trial. So there's not really even a declaration of innocence. So going back to Ken Wynemko's case, it was a stranger rape case, and the DNA testing conclusively proved that Ken Wynemko could not have been the rapist. But that is still a very difficult end of the road to get to. I really appreciate the information that you've provided today. It's very interesting to get down to real-life situations, so I do appreciate that. We're going to take another short break, but before we do, Professor Mitchell, can you tell people how they can get more information about the Cooley Law School Innocence Project? Yes, you could go to cooley.edu and... You can see information about our Innocence Project Clinic on our website. And then for your listeners who are really interested in in reading more about specific cases or even perhaps looking up the DNA exonerations in Michigan, they could go to innocenceproject.org, which is the New York Innocence Project site. And that site contains a lot more detailed information about the causes of wrongful conviction, about compensation laws throughout the U.S., and again, specific case stories, if you will, about the men and women who have been exonerated by DNA testing throughout the United States. Terrific. Thank you. It's going to be interesting. I'm going to be doing some reading this weekend, I can tell you. So thank you very much. Appreciate your being here, and I hope to see you again soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Let's take another short break. When you come back, I'm going to have some practice tips for you, so don't leave yet. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to The Paralegal Voice. This is the time of the show when I share my practice tip with you. I hear from many paralegals, they've either graduated from a school and they haven't got a job yet, or they have some experience but not a whole lot. And the problem with getting a job is that they're virtually on a merry-go-round. 
The employer requires experience. You can't get experience unless you have a job. So it's difficult. But I do have some tips for getting the experience that you need. The first thing is that while you are in school and while you're learning all of this, get a job in a law office if you can. You probably won't be working as a paralegal. You may be even opening the mail. Doesn't matter. You have experience in a law office. And another benefit is that you might find you don't like working there, so you should know that before you're out in the working world. The other thing is to volunteer. Now, a program like the Innocence Project would be a great place to volunteer if they can use you. There are law clinics. There are paralegal associations who do wills on wheels. There's all kinds of places that you can work, and this volunteer experience is going to look great on your resume. The last thing is to be sure that you join a paralegal association. There may be one at your local level, they have them on the state level, and also there are national associations. Please join one and all of them if you can, because you will meet people who know of jobs that are out there. Most of the jobs that come along are not advertised. They're word of mouth. So you need to be out in the work world meeting these people who know what's going on in the community. Those are my three tips for you to find a job when you don't have a lot of experience. Now, we're going to be back next month. I have another exciting program planned for you. I hope that you will be sure to check out my blog, paralegalmentorblog.com, and also the resources that are available at paralegalmentor.com. All of these are designed to help you move your career forward. That is the direction that you always want to be going in. Now, that's all the time we have today for the Paralegal Voice. If you have questions about today's show, please email them to Vicki at paralegalmentor.com. And Vicki is spelled V-I-C-K-I. This is Vicki Voison thanking you for listening to the Paralegal Voice and reminding you to make your Paralegal Voice heard. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to The Paralegal Voice, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Vicki Voisin for her next podcast on issues and trends affecting paralegals and legal assistants. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.